0: Eric Erickson once said, In the social jungle of human existence, there is no feeling of being alive without a sense of identity. This is Save vs. Rant.
1: Welcome to Save vs. Rant, the Everyman Gaming Podcast. I'm John. And I'm Jeremy. And today we are talking about NPC construction. What we're going to do is we're going to go into the nitty gritty about building NPCs and how to make your NPCs better. Right. We're mostly going to be talking about the
0: philosophy of NPC construction and what you can do to make your NPCs quickly, efficiently, but still get thoroughly compelling NPCs for your game. Let's just jump right into it. Uh, We've divided NPC construction into two basic philosophies. The first one we'd like to talk about is what we call purpose-driven NPC
1: construction.
0: What is purpose-driven NPC construction?
1: Well, first you need to decide what the role of your NPC is going to be in the game. Then you stat them out and then you go from there. Oftentimes you'll need town guards. Well, you don't really need to have a full name and backstory for the town guards. You just need bodies. So you will need to go through and write out the important stats of a town guard. Right. The most important thing for NPCs built with this method is what their
0: actual stats and role in the game is. That is, how are they going to present themselves as adversaries to the player characters, adversaries, allies, or even incidental third parties? How do they present themselves in game? In this case, we are talking about not only just a basic description of them, which is typically all you're going to need to start out with for NPCs like this, but also what their actual stats are, what kind of weapons or special abilities they might wield, what kind of spells they can cast, and how they prepare themselves for combat as well as combat strategies and general actions and outlook on how to solve the challenge of dealing with the player characters. From there you would then work on any backstory the character might need or any purpose to the character. A great example is uh, say we need a town guard.
1: Alright, we need a town guard. We'll give him the stats of a third level warrior because that seems like a fairly average town guard that means about 22 hit points 13 armor class if we're talking about pathfinder and then we'll give him uh some sort of polearm uh, a spear a glaive or a a what's that weird french one Guisab. bless you and then from there we'll decide where he's at okay he's patrolling the walls oh well because i think that he's patrolling the walls because he got an upgrade from being a jailer uh, yeah, yeah, We're we're talking about Sergeant Frank here. He was a jailer, and now he patrols the walls, and he constantly knows the people that are coming and going from town. He knows when the bandits are sneaking off to places outside of town and might be able to give a heads up to the captain of the guard. Right, so Sergeant Francis
0: of the town guard, formerly a jailer, but he's since been promoted, but still holds true to his roots of specifically monitoring comings and goings and knowing who what and where things are at all times so what we focused on first though was talking about him being a third level warrior because he's not a specialized character he's going to have an npc class the point is the first thing we did is determine what his in-game stats are now one thing that this is good for is this method once you've got these stats a lot of times they can be very transferable if you've got one third level warrior who's a town guard, you've probably got most of the town guard right there. They're all going to be pretty similar in skill levels. They're probably outfitted in similar, if not identical manners for uniformity. They all have similar philosophies as far as guarding for the most part. So that's most of the generic town guards right there. Now, one thing that people don't consider is that genericism like this actually promotes and emphasizes diversity. When you have have six town guards, and they're all the same. That gives you an opportunity to make another town guard stand out in a meaningful way. Whereas, if all the town guards are so unique and flamboyantly different that they all have their own independent identities that are completely separate, different kits, different equipment, then not only do they become just a mishmash of characters that are just all right there in, in a way that doesn't become compelling for the players, but it means that you can't make another character stand out in an interesting
1: way you don't even need to make it for a specific character. Let's say that you have your town guard, and they're all armed with guisarms. Well, the town guard that are in the towers would probably have longer short bows, which would also imply that they might have a higher perception skill, and they might have a higher charisma, being able to shout there they are out there. Moreover, when you do have a unique NPC, a towering town guard who steps forward with a two-handed sword, then you know that this is a Major opponent, and not just the traditional mooks that you've been mowing down this whole time.
0: One great example of this is the very first module of Rise of the Rune Lords. There is a scene where goblins are attacking, and the goblins are divided into a few major categories. There's the regular goblins, which are fairly plentiful, there's the goblin commandos and the Goblin Firebugs, which are a little rarer, but still fairly generic characters. There's a Goblin War Chanter, who's a bard who improves the power of all the other goblins and is therefore a much more interesting character and one that the player characters might want to focus on taking down. And then there's a couple of boss characters among the goblins. The point being that each of these different groups allows you to have a fight that's more diverse without intentionally making a dozen different completely unique goblins and wasting the effort over
1: and over on reinventing the wheel for each goblin. Also, it helps you run the combats faster. If you have four stat blocks all on one sheet, you can easily just mark down the hit points and move on. Whereas if you have eight or ten different stat blocks, now your whole area behind your DM screen, if you use one, is completely taken up or you're flipping back and forth in different pages of a book going, okay, wait, what's this one? What's this one? What's this one? And trying to keep it all balanced. I'll admit, in some of the very earliest D&D campaigns I ran back when I was running second
0: edition, I kind of fell victim to that. I would actually have piles of character sheets behind my DM screen for all of these different NPCs that they were encountering, and some of them were just like two or three different town guards, and I'd make a character sheet for each one and fill out all the stats completely, roll them up as characters, and make fully fleshed out characters, and honestly, this was so much wasted effort, because first of all, nobody even noticed, and they certainly certainly didn't notice for long enough for these things to be important. At no point did it matter that one of them had a 17 strength, because he did slightly more damage, but then the fight was over, and he was gone forever. So it didn't matter that he did slightly more damage. Whereas, if you have a group of town guards that are wielding the guisarms and a group of town guards that are wielding these two-handed swords, right there, the player characters have an interesting tactical decision to make that they can inform based just on looking at these characters. They know that the guys with the swords are more heavy hitters. The guys with the pole arms can put them in unpleasant and awkward positions using the reach. Between the two, you have a really interesting dynamic combat.
1: But John, what if Sergeant Francis is in the group of town guard using the Gwisarms and then the player characters kill him off without you being able to give his full backstory? What then? Well, in the spirit of ensuring that
0: there's no wasted effort, I generally advocate DM cheating. Anything that the player characters did not find out is still fair game to use elsewhere. Now, I know what you're thinking. This might rob the player characters of their victory, but I'm not talking about just eliminating a threat, this is a potential resource or a character who has some interest in the campaign later. Recycling that material that was never actually used will let you reinsert that interest into the game. If the town guard, who is also formerly a jailer, is killed and you really wanted him to be an available resource later in the campaign, have that not be him. Unless it's been explicitly stated at this point, that's information that's still behind the curtain and can be swapped seamlessly to another character. Once again, to be clear, I'm not advocating that you take away a character's victory from them or that you move around information that's all already known to the player characters. What I'm talking about is something that you had prepared that you are potentially going to lose the ability to present because the character's been eliminated in a way that never let that information
1: come to light. Now, one of the resources I like to use is a database or a book full of NPCs. That way, I don't have to stat out a bunch of NPCs. I can just open up a book, look at it, and go, yeah, I'll use those for what I have. Another thing I was guilty of is I didn't do that a lot in my
0: very early DM career, and a lot of wasted effort went into making characters when it would have been just as well if I had used a generic character someone else had produced.
1: In front of me, I have the NPC Codex for Pathfinder, the Villain Codex, the Monster Codex. All of these are wonderful resources for NPCs who are different than just your standard monsters. I also have Masters and Minions. It's a third-party supplement by Jack. Pack 7 for 5th edition Dungeons & Dragons. In that, it contains NPC villains that are both masters, the main point of an adventure or a campaign, and the people that follow him. That really helps flesh out a lot of what's going on and takes a lot of work off of your shoulders and lets you focus on making a very enjoyable game. Another great thing about that is that
0: Masters and Minions format gives you an interesting existing relationship between the two characters or between groups of characters. I mean, as an example, Strad von Zarovich, the vampire count, is going to have a large number of minions and servants and such. And knowing that those servants exist and having some generic stat blocks for them, again, creates that interesting relationship between them and lets Strahd stand out not only on his own, but in his relation to all these other
1: characters. And that's a good segue to our next method of creating NPCs, the face-forward method. In the front of Curse of Strahd, 5th edition D&D, Tracy Hickman wrote about how he encountered a generic vampire in a dungeon, and he really didn't like that. He wanted the vampire to be different. He wanted the vampire to be something special, something more, and thus, the seeds of Strahd von Zarovich were birthed from that. A vampire who was the lord of his own lands, who had a dark and brooding backstory, who was a villain and is a very memorable NPC. In the face-forward method, you figure out, once again, what the role Role in your game, the NPC is going to be, but then you determine who they are. Who are they? Strahd von Zarovich is the lord and villain of Barovia.
0: If we were doing this with our town guard example, we would realize that we need a character who used to be a jailer who is now in the town guard and work from there instead of going the other way. The way that we did it initially through the purpose-driven method, we figured out he needed to be a third-level warrior, and then we filled in the whole jailer side plot as an afterthought. In this case, it would be if we needed a character who filled that role, and then we would work our way toward, well, he's also a town guard now, and as such, he does have some Warrior training. He's a third level warrior and he fights with a Guisarm, as do all the town guards. So there he goes, moving into that role instead of starting in that role and moving towards it. The overlap between the two methods is that in both cases, we know what
1: role they needed to occupy in our game. Likewise with our town guard example, if we knew that we needed a friendly town guard to meet the player characters at the wall and give them a little bit of a hint that they might want to go toward the jail, we can then use this Sergeant Francis as a great character who then can reoccur over and over throughout the campaign to be a strong ally.
0: Or even an adversary to the characters if it works out that way. Great thing about this methodology is if you understand the character, their role can be dynamic in the game. Once you know what their motivations are, what they desire, and what their plans are, you can understand how that interacts with the player characters and how they might view the actions or attitudes of the
1: player characters favorably or unfavorably. In our Changeling game, John and I statted out four major NPCs. We needed to have the kings and queens of the different courts. And so we had this method where we wanted to know who they were, what their overt goals were, what their covert goals were, and what their dark secrets were.
0: In every case, we wanted them to have easily defined versions of all of these. Everyone would have overt goals that everybody knew, that they were open about, that they always talked about. What are our plans? They would have covert goals that maybe they wanted to play a little closer to the chest. And then they would have a dark secret. We decided early on that every one of the monarchs was going to have a dark secret to be discovered later in the game. Now, what this let us do is build their personalities and who they were and then we kind of just made their stats as an afterthought like well they have to be powerful so let's give them uh this much weird they'll have access to these contracts what is necessary in their backstory okay yeah they've definitely got like healing magic if that's appropriate to them or magic that makes them a great orator because that's part of who they are but beyond that we just filled in
1: the blanks as we needed. Now, one of the beautiful parts of the face-forward method is that it really gives you a sense of immersion. The specific nature of these NPCs promotes immersion. If you have a fully fleshed-out character, then the players might feel that every NPC that they bump into is as fully fleshed-out, even if they aren't. Even if they are just a standard town guard. Right, and one way of familiarizing yourself
0: with this methodology is to look at how the world of darkness does it all of the world of darkness games both from the first edition and from the revised second editions fifth editions the reboot of the entire franchise all of them still use this face forward method you need to determine what your character is from a basic concept and it might be crooked lawyer or dedicated cop or unscrupulous monster hunter all of these are possible and then you would build build them around other things. One neat thing that the World of Darkness has is certain mechanical benefits that are tied to descriptive terms. In Vampire the Requiem, for example, the first edition of that, you have Virtue and Vice, and later you had a Dirge and a Requiem. And both of those are really easy concepts to understand, even if there's no mechanic tied to it. You could use those in any game system. How would you describe this character at their best? That's their virtue. How would you describe them when they're behaving at their worst? That's their vice. These are great ways of building this sort of interest in the character so that you can can further flesh
1: them out. All of this allows you as a DM to, once again, cheat a little bit. If you have a really good character already built out, you can then determine their role in the story based on what the players do. They can react in a reasonable way. In our Changeling game, we actually had an NPC who was either a villain or a hero based on what would be most interesting to the player characters. Right. The way the player
0: characters took interest in this character determined whether they were a hero or a villain. We already had a personality built for them, and we already knew what their general motivation was. And I'm not just talking like the player characters' interactions with them were going to determine this based on whether or not it helps fulfill this character's goals, but whether or not the player characters liked them. Because that's a great way of informing whether they want to see this NPC in a positive or negative light. Now, I'm not saying that you need to pigeonhole it either way based on what your player characters do, but having a little flexibility and recognizing that if the player characters keep coming back to Brad the Blind Beggar for information, they're interested in Brad the Blind Beggar, and maybe Brad the Blind Beggar should be a little bit more important than he currently is.
1: Now, I do enjoy resources for face-forward NPCs, but I found that a lot of them are a little lacking. My favorite one that is actually fully fleshed out is the Vampire the Masquerade 5th Edition book. In the front and back covers, they have 50 victims. They give names who they are, what they want, and most importantly, what their role in your game is. And I find that a lot of NPC databases online often have characters that are so fleshed out that they go for a very specific campaign. Right, that is a
0: pitfall of this method is that in a lot of cases, characters are tied to the media or specific story that they're in and they can't be easily transferred. This sort of bare-bones skeleton character with just enough information to pick your creativity and give you a shot at building a character around these basic pieces of information are great for that. But even so, with the face-forward methodology, literally every work of fiction or non-fiction that has ever existed is a potential source of characterization. A great example that comes off the top of my head is how Frank Miller has described Marv from Sin City as just being Conan the Barbarian transposed to a modern setting. Not to be mistaken for the actual Conan comic where Conan was teleported to modern times and fought Captain America. That's completely different. This is Conan's personality and general demeanor moved to modern times and the dysfunctions that come with that. But you could use characters from any work of fiction. James Bond could be a great archetype for a spy in one of your games. The orcs from the Warcraft franchise could easily model to orcs, or even just warriors in your game, or Klingons. Who knows? All of these are available, and with a little bit of flexibility, you can adapt all sorts of things to your setting in your
1: game. Now, both of these methods, to completely go through with them is a lot of work to fully flesh out a character from role to who they are to stats or from role to stats to who they are is a lot of work. And I kind of like to use half methods. They're really ways of just kind of cheating around. this. Sometimes you only need a little NPC. For the half purpose driven method, you might only need the stat block. As we were mentioning before, you might have town guards for the town and their third level warriors. But if the player characters don't really talk to the town guards in one town, they might be the same stats as the town guards in another town. They might even not have names
0: or personalities at all. It's not necessary until it actually becomes important to the story, or unless you think it will become important to the story. And in a lot of cases, you can even use truncated stat blocks. If a character is only going to be involved in social encounters,
1: it could be a waste to even bother giving him hit points. Exactly. Now, John and I talked before about how you can even transpose NPCs From one area to another, we talked about how you might have a 5th level rogue in a past episode who is the leader of a thieves guild who you might be able to transfer over and make him the captain of a pirate ship. The same thing with the half purpose method. If you have a stat block that is useful, you can keep using it there's no reason not to. The player characters
0: should not typically have full knowledge of a stat block anyway. They'll just understand the abstract of what this character represents.
1: Uh, Likewise with the half-face method, if you have a good backstory for a character, as John said, you might not even need hit points for that character. You might just want one major ability and the dice roll for that ability. And who knows? You might not even need that. You might have an NPC who is a film noir style detective who can sense magic, and he has an ability to sense magic. But if the player characters don't really need his ability to sense magic and just need him as a normal private detective, then you can just have him be a private detective. Both of these half methods kind of lead into one of my favorite methods of just being a lazy DM all the way through. And that's what uh, John and I call Schrodinger's NPC. Schrodinger's NPC is both a good guy and a bad guy.
0: He's both well-armed and completely helpless. He's both... Extremely intelligent and very stupid. Because until it matters to the story, you haven't decided. You don't need to make those decisions. Once it matters, though, you
1: make the decision and you stick with it. You will often have just... A brief name or description, and then as the player characters come along and interact with this NPC, you just write it down. You have your uh, you have your notes. You either have a notebook or a laptop or something, and you just start filling in these notes. Well, they didn't hit him on the first few attacks. Well, that's because he has a high armor class. Well, if he has a high armor class, uh that means he has a high dexterity because I didn't describe that he has a lot of armor, and so he has a high dexterity. Maybe he was an acrobat in his former life. In most cases, this is a lot easier to do with the face-forward method than the purpose-driven
0: method because if you have a purpose-driven character, it requires a substantial level of mastery of the system to just make up stats on the fly. Some systems have really good shorthand for this. D&D 4th and 5th edition both do a fantastic job of telling you what the basics are. And in some systems, it's a little easier than others. In World of Darkness, for example, it can be really easy to just know off the cuff that most people have have a 2 or a 3 in most of their stats. So anytime that you have to roll intelligence, you can generally assume the intelligence is going to be 2 or 3 and stick
1: with your choice once you've made it. Is he a little smarter or just regular? Now, one of my favorite examples of an NPC that really seems like they were fleshed out as the main character interacted with them was Bob the Hydra agent. In Deadpool, Bob was just an average, ordinary agent of Hydra who Deadpool started interrogating, and it turns out that Bob is working for Hydra because his wife pressured him into it because she didn't believe that he would be able to hold down a full-time job. Also, he really likes the dental plan of Hydra, although he's a little disappointed that it's not as comprehensive as it could be. And then, later on, we find out that, well, he was really more a part of the janitorial staff and not uh, an active fighter, so he doesn't necessarily know how to fly a plane as they need to escape. And all of these kind of seem like the writer was just coming up on the spot with, well, does Bob know this or not? And that's a great way of fleshing out an NPC. He could have just been a normal Hydra agent killed in the first panel. But he wasn't. As John said to me as we were preparing this, NPCs don't have motivations or backstories unless the player characters interact with them. Exactly.
0: Just like the uh, Heisenberg Uncertainty Principle and Schrödinger's Cat, nothing is set in stone until you actually check for it. Same thing. NPCs don't have hopes and dreams until someone asks.
1: With all of this, there are some perils that you have to really look out for. In both the purpose-driven method and the face-forward method, you need to keep good notes. Keeping good notes, there's a reason that we emphasize this so much
0: in our DMing 101 episode, and that's because it's absolutely vital because nothing shatters the suspense of disbelief worse than telling the player characters, oh wait, I forgot something, let me fix that. It does happen to everyone periodically, except certain incredible celebrity DMs you might listen to in other podcasts, but in general, this is something that everyone's had experience with. Everyone's had that moment where they went, oh crap, I I forgot about this. I'm going to have to go back and we'll
1: revamp this and fix this. Even then, sometimes it might just be best to go, yeah, no, it. I know that I said that before, but it's different now. Why is that? And fish the players to come up with an answer. Which is actually a neat bit of DM
0: trickery is you can often make decisions based on what the player characters might be speculating. There's been several times in both my game, Jeremy's games, and also in the game we're running together where the player characters have said something like, I think he might be in cahoots with the prince. Or he definitely has a plan to
1: deal with the alien invasion. And we say, well he does now. The other part of the perils are being a little too tied to your plans. Yeah, you might have really wanted Sergeant Francis to be a big part of this campaign. And the player characters just do not trust any of the town guard in any towns. That's fine. All of your work is still there. No work is wasted. Sergeant Frank can still exist. He might be in another campaign, just not this one. Don't get tied up in the notion that you absolutely have to use something just because you
0: created it. Sometimes that's just not viable. The last peril is you need to know what information outside of the obvious might be necessary within your system. Now in D&D, there are a lot of ways for player characters to fish for information based on things like the results of spells whether or not an attack hit all of this lets them extrapolate and pin down specifics of a stat block that might otherwise be hidden but a great example of something that's not quite as obvious is how in the world of darkness a lot of special abilities might reveal certain information about people one example is that several different splats in the new world of darkness have the ability to determine what someone's greatest fear is. This is a big deal and you might not have thought of what a character's greatest fear was, but knowing in advance that your player or characters can do that is a big step toward being able to cope with it when it happens. Having said that you might not always be able to anticipate that. And the important thing again is to keep good notes. If you keep good notes, whatever you make up on the fly, you can probably compensate for later, even if it ends up being kind of a lame or weak idea. So the prince is afraid of the dark. That doesn't sound like much, but that could actually be a really big deal and a major informer of how he lives his life and where he places certain vulnerabilities.
1: So, to summarize, both of these methods start out with you needing to know the role of an NPC. You don't want to come up with a Tanner with a deep backstory if the player characters are all wearing plate armor. And have no other reason to encounter a Tanner. After you determine the role, then decide what method you want to go with. If it's primarily an antagonistic role, you're probably going to want to go with the purpose-driven method. You're going to want to figure out the stats first and then work on personality. But if it's a role where there's going to be a lot of talking, even if it is a little adversarial, you might want to come up with the personality first. You might want to come up with the fact that this guy is a bit of a dick because he's a heroin addict and really jonesing for his next fix. After that, you then come up with the stats. To bring it all together, remember that no work is wasted. Once you have your work down, even if the player characters don't interact with that NPC, they might interact with them at a later date.
0: All right, so that is our episode on NPCs. Next up, we're going to be talking about economics in games. I know that sounds like a very dry topic, but what we'd like to discuss is the practical aspect of it, the experience of economics, and what it means to the player at the time.
1: Once again, this has been Save vs. Rant. Thank you very much for listening. Society exists only as a mental concept. In the real world, there are only individuals. Oscar Wilde. Save vs. Rant is a Tabletop Gamers Guild production. Your hosts are John and Jeremy, with music by Timmy Skittles. New episodes are released on the first and third Monday of each month. Save vs. Rant is recorded on dueling laptops in front of a silent and invisible studio audience. Visit us at savevsrant.com, or contact us on Facebook or Twitter at Save vs. Rant. We'd love to hear from you.